Welcome to Lake Mount Worship Center, connecting you to the life-changing presence of Jesus Christ. We hope that you are blessed and inspired by today's message. So we're heading into the Christmas season, and um, the, the season also known as Advent, which literally just means the arrival of a notable person or thing. The Advent or the arrival of the Son of God. There's no more important arrival, no more important event or person in all of human history. Can I get an amen to that? This is the most significant event to happen for every human, whether they know it or not. Uh, Through faith, in the eyes of faith, we know it, that Jesus came and not only split the calendar in half, but he changed the before and after of every heart that has responded to him in faith and has come into a living relationship with God, that God took on human flesh. And so historically, the church has celebrated the four Sundays that lead up to uh, Christmas with uh, the Advent uh, message, uh, gospel-focused message. And uh, this year, as you know, Christmas Eve is a Sunday. So again, I just want to reiterate to you that what we're doing as a church family this Christmas Eve is we're going to have two Christmas Eve services. One will be at 10 in the morning and the same service will be at, at, at six. So if you came for both, you'd be like, wow, deja vu. And you might be sitting in someone's seat. So choose one, okay? And and, and come and join us. And can I ask you to do this? Would you pray between now and Christmas Eve who you might invite to bring with you? Because we're going to preach the gospel on Christmas Eve. And uh, it's, it's a reachable moment where people uh, will, will be open to uh, coming into the house of God, maybe for no other reason than tradition or something like that. But most people come to church when they're invited. So I just want to encourage you to invite somebody and uh, let's make lots of room. Let's prepare room for the Lord and believe that God is going to meet with us. And so I just, I, this is my prayer for us as a church. I want us to just, I just want us to fall more in love with Jesus. I want us to become more enthralled with him, consumed by him. And uh, he is the savior of the whole world. He's a savior for everyone who reached to him in faith. A couple weeks ago, I preached uh, on beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and was looking in Isaiah 9, which is a messianic chapter talking about, uh, about the coming of the Christ and how uh, in, in Isaiah 9 it talks about the people walking in the darkness have seen a great light. That light is Jesus. That light is the Messiah. He's the light of the world. Think about that image for a second, that Jesus is the light of the world. Just picture that. That the, the more the church falls in love with Jesus, the brighter the light. The more the world rejects Jesus, the deeper the darkness. And where we focus determines our direction. I want, to just, I want us just to turn our eyes on Jesus. Just get in, just focus our attention on Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus and allow him to reveal himself to us. You know that's what he wants to do. You know the Holy Spirit wants to reveal Jesus to your heart, even this morning, in an increased way than you've ever known. Amen? I believe God wants to reveal himself to us today. And even as that prophetic word came today, that, that Jesus is revealing himself, that, that that takes a partnership of our faith. God is drawing near. What we want to do is draw near to him 
in faith and turn our eyes on Jesus. We're going to go to the book of Isaiah this morning, and you can go ahead and get over to Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah was the primary prophetic voice in the Old Testament who spoke of the coming Messiah. God used his voice to prepare hearts for an expectation of the man, Jesus Christ, God taking on human flesh. The second person of the Trinity for all eternity will be a man. That's a big deal. That's God's love expressed. That he took on flesh and is forever a man. Fully God, fully man. Jesus came into the world with an assignment and he wanted to save the entire world and he paid for that salvation and we received that salvation by yielding to his lordship and confessing him in faith. So there's wisdom for us to take time and celebrate Advent. There, there's wisdom for us to take time and focus our attention in on the coming of the Lord Jesus because it gives us appreciation for the humanity and the deity of Christ. It gives us appreciation. It reorients us to the humility of the God who took on flesh and then took on suffering in that flesh, not because of himself, but because of you and because of me. There's wisdom in orienting ourselves there. The, the prophet Isaiah was a watchman. He, he, he operated prophetically as a watchman. He was watching for what God was doing, watching for what God, and listening for what God was saying. And he was a man of prayer. He was a man of intercession, not just prophetic declaration, but, but as you read through the book, you catch these prayers, and that's where we are today in Isaiah 64 as we look at Advent, as we look at the coming of Jesus. This, the, the prophet Isaiah interceded. To intercede is to pray on behalf of those who cannot or do not or will not pray. That's intercession. It's to pray the prayer that someone else should be praying, but they're not, so you do it. Everyone in this room can be an intercessor. There's no spiritual gift of intercession. There are people who pray more than you and you think they have a gift. They're better at prayer because they do it more. How, how do I grow in prayer? Pray. And to intercede is to pray the prayer that someone else should be praying, but they're not. You need to have a prophetic ear to heaven to know what that prayer is. But every parent knows what it is to intercede. The prayers that you pray for your kids, they're the prayers that they, when they're little, they can't pray this prayer, but you can. When they're wandering, they won't pray this prayer, but you will. God is, is listening for the intercessor that calls upon him. And his ears are attentive to those who catch his heart and burden and pray a prayer that must be prayed. And prayer is not just Christian activity. It's how the hand of God moves on the earth. And until we're convicted of that, we will see prayer simply as, as religious activity for people that are different than me. 
But when I recognize I can be an intercessor and I must pray, then I realize God has not committed me to futile activity that just proves I'm a good Christian, but he's actually inviting me into relationship with him, partnership with his heart, and I can intercede and pray the prayers that must be prayed. And as we fall in love with Jesus, he births in us a heart that longs to pray, to partner with his desired activity on the earth. That's how Jesus, when he took on flesh, taught us to pray. For God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you say, well, whatever is happening is God's will, and you understand in part Because it's true, nothing happens outside of God's knowledge. But there are things that happen outside of God's desire. And when we pray, what we're saying is, God, the things that you desire, we agree with, and we're partnering with you. And God, in humility, says, that's how I will move on the earth. When we become convicted of that, we'll pray. Because we'll actually recognize what God wants to do in your family is connected to your praying. What God wants to do in your life is connected to your praying. What God wants to do in this church is connected to your praying. Not just the pastor's praying, your praying. What God wants to do on the earth, get this, the hour that we live in, the deep darkness and the need for the light, there is an answer. And yes, it's Jesus, that's that's right. But how will Jesus move in this hour? A praying church. People who catch the heart to intercede and pray the prayer that no one else is praying, pray it. The others should pray, pray it. The conviction that needs to come upon the backslider, pray it. The awakening that needs to come in the political realm, pray it. The shaking that needs to come, pray it. Intercede and pray it. Isaiah was an intercessor prophetically. And I believe that prophecy, prophetic gift, and intercession are married. The the, the Holy Spirit wants to teach us how to pray, wants to teach us how to lean in to the purpose of God. And so, so as a watchman, God's calling us to watch what God wants to do on our watch. You know, we use that figure of speech, not on my watch. Well, what is our watch? It's our existence. There's some things that need to grip your heart as a mom and as a dad, not on my watch. some things that need to grip our hearts prayerfully that we say, how, how can I, how can little old me make a difference? I can make a big claim, not on my watch, but how in the world can I be a part of seeing cosmic events align? Pray. God says his kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as he has it set. The desire he has in heaven will be manifest on earth When you and I pray. And so in Isaiah chapter 64, the prophet prays a prophetic prayer of desire. I'd like to propose to you it's revival praying. And I want us to look at this prayer together. This is a prayer that could grip your heart. It's a prayer that could awaken your soul to hunger for God. Some of you have come today and you're saying, man, I, I, 
I want to love God like I once did, this word could ignite a fire in you. That's the power of God's word. Some of you feeling aimless, connecting to the heart of God will put aim in your life. It will put aim in your activity. It, it will purpose you where there's purposelessness. And so the, the word of God can come and ignite a fire. This, this passage of scripture that I'm about to unpack this morning, this passage of scripture has been used by God to stir revival throughout history. And as we look at the coming, the advent of Jesus to the earth, that's what this prayer is for. And you say, well, Jesus has already come. Yep, and he's coming again. And you say, well, 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 Jesus is pouring out his spirit. Yep. And the Bible says in the time of outpouring, ask for an outpouring. What does that mean? Agree with God while he's doing something. Do you know what God's doing in this hour? He, he is pouring out conviction in a, in a powerful way in these days. We should agree with it. We should say, God, do more of that. The conviction that you're stirring, stir it up more. We're asking for you to come. We're asking for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit even here today. Can I get an amen? amen. Isaiah chapter 64, we're going to work through the first nine verses. Let's look at verse 1. It says, oh, this is him praying. Oh, that you, God, would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. We're going to pause there. That's, we're already off to a great start. That's a good prayer. Oh, that you would tear open heaven and come down. What a prayer. I'm not content for things the way that they are, I need you to intervene, God. Tear open heaven and come down. Have you ever felt in your prayer life, you don't have to do a show of hands or anything, but have you ever felt, like maybe you just do a little silent hand like this. <laughs> you ever felt like your prayers are just bouncing off the roof? Like, I, I'm sure we all have at one point or another. Maybe some of you are feeling like that today. When, when we come to a place where it seems like we're just waiting, like, like we're an in-between season, God needs to do something. We're convinced of it. There's something that needs to happen in my life. There's something that needs to happen in my marriage. There's something that needs to happen in my kids. There's something that needs to happen in my family, in my, in my country. There's something that needs to happen in my life, and I don't see it happening. In those moments spiritual hunger or spiritual apathy will be awakened. You say, how is that possible? Well, we can take a waiting season as evidence that God's not interested in us. That things are the way they are, and because God knows, we can build theology around apathy and just say, well, God knows, and he's not doing anything, so I guess God doesn't care. And usually we don't say that out loud. When we're saying that out loud, we're in what's called the dark night of the soul. When we say that out loud, we're accusing God of character that we know theologically is not aligned with how he's revealed himself, but experientially we feel like it's dissonant. 
Like the strings aren't in tune on the guitar. It's sour. And so we're, we, we can't make the connection. And so we just feel like apathy. Or we can see a waiting season as evidence that the time is getting closer for God to move. Evidence that it's time for us to pray and spiritual hunger can be awakened. Now there's a right response and a bad response. I'm going to let you choose which one is which. Well, I'm going to tell you what the right one is. Let hunger get stirred in you in a waiting season. Isaiah prayed, Lord, rip open the heavens and come down. Did you know you could talk to God like that? Lord, tear open heaven over my family. Rip open heaven and get in here. Rip open heaven over my marriage. Rip open heaven over this country. Tear open the heavens and come down. It's a prayer that refuses to sit in what is and just remain silent. It's a prayer that says, I can see and sense prophetically what needs to happen, and I refuse apathy. I choose prayer. I choose to pray the prayer that needs to be prayed. Rip open the heavens and intervene. He says, light a fire in me. We just read it. He says, light a fire in us. It's a collective prayer. God, light a fire in the church. It, like, put a fire under us that will cause us to boil again. That's revival praying. Lukewarmness will rob you of all that God has for you. Being lukewarm. Refusing to boil. Settling for cooling off. And calling it maturity. Oh, I used to I used to get up early and pray and all that stuff, but now I know God hears me. Oh, I used to come to church all the time. Now I, you know, I give God one Sunday a month. Like I I've got other things, you know, I've matured. Lukewarmness will rob you of all that God has for you. Jesus said to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, 15 and 16, he says, I know your deeds. Did you know that? God knows your deeds. He says, I know what you're doing. He says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. Like Jesus is saying, I wish you'd go all the way, figure it out, go all the way into your apathy and sin or come all the way after me, but I don't like the halfway. Because you're lukewarm, he says, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That doesn't fit with the modern contemporary idea of Jesus. He doesn't spit anybody out. He's just always giving everyone a hug. I guess we have to look at the Bible and see if it rebukes our ideas. I know your deeds. And because you're going two directions at once, can I just say, doubt robs you of spiritual fervor. Don't live with doubt. Address your doubts. Chase down your doubts. Kill your doubts with faith. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. Doubt has the same root word as double. Doubt is to be double-minded. It's to believe two things with equal measure of faith. James 1, verse 6 and 8 says this. He must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. 
That man should not think he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded and unstable in all he does. Why? Because you're believing for two things with equal faith. That's doubt. It's not unbelief. It's doubt. It's, it's, it's being unstable in all that you do, being unsure. Un, un, unsure in your walk with God, unstable in every way, trusting in God, but not fully. Living for God, but also living for yourself. Passionate about God, but also passionate for private sin. We need the fire to burn. That's what Isaiah prayed. I need a fire to burn in me again because the doubts are cooling me off. I'm starting to, I'm starting to reach in two directions at once and I can't actually, I can't get to Windsor and Toronto at the same time. I'm going to have to pick a lane and hit the pedal and move in the direction of faith. I need the fire. We need to be brought back to the boiling point. That's what he said. We need the coldness of apathy and double-mindedness to be overwhelmed by the presence of God. That's what we need. That's what I need. That's what we need. We need the fire of God to burn and boil in us again and not be content with the still waters, but say, God, burn the fire in us again. Rend the heavens. Change my life. Wreck me for normal. Come on down into my life. I can't just keep going like this, tear open heaven, intervene in my life, and light a fire. That's revival praying. Look again at verse 2. He says, come down and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. Listen, the church needs the fire. The world needs to see the power of his name. We need the fire of God in our lives, but the church, the church needs the fire of God, but the world needs to see the power of his name. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, 29, listen to this. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will not only shake the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and in awe, for our God is a consuming fire. See, we need the fire of God that persuades us that living lukewarm is insufficient. I need to burn for God. I need to boil for him. I need my life to be ready for whatever God is calling me into. I, I'm, I'm not going to just be halfway or go two directions at once. I'm all in on God. And when the church begins to burn, then a prayer starts to bubble up from within. And the prayer is this, God, shake the nations. Show the power of your name. How many believe it's time for God to shake the nations? I'll give you another chance. How many believe it's time for God to shake the nations? It's what's needed. The prophetic intercessor gets it. That's what needs to happen. I mean, just turn off your feed and just go to the prayer closet. We need God. Make the mountains tremble. Show your power. The nations will shake, but the church will stand firm. 
This is the prophetic understanding of the last days. It'll get worse for the world, but better for the church. That's not us versus them. That's saying there's an arc of safety that becomes appealing when you're getting drenched out there in the darkness. Back to Isaiah 64, verse 3. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. Let me say that again. You come to the help of those who gladly do right. Who remember your ways. God acts on behalf of those who look to him. Who remember his ways. Not just his word, that's important, but his ways. People who catch his heart and aren't just looking for the loopholes on paper. Those who gladly do what is right. When I was a kid... Being a do-gooder was somehow an insult. I don't know if it still is. You say, oh, that's a do-gooder. That person's a do-gooder. So straight-laced. And the the kind of mocking tone of it was, you're a do-gooder, meaning you just don't know where the fun is because you're so buttoned down and bottled in because of your religion or your religious view of God. Even in the church, that persecution, that's too strong a word, that mockery, that teasing would come. Oh, you're, you're, you're so buttoned down. I believe that we need some people who gladly do what's right. People who are glad to walk in the ways of the Lord. People who are free from double-mindedness. I'm all in on God. I'm boiling. I don't need your ice cube. I'm hot. But can I be honest? I get tired of the Christians and especially leaders that are always posting about their boundary-pushing behaviors. Flaunting it as though somehow they're unencumbered by rules. That they're so free. They're so free that, they, that their, their entertainments and their and their their enjoyments have no difference between them and anyone who doesn't know the Lord. I tire of that. We need more godly leaders who are confident in righteousness. Those who gladly do what's right. Not not begrudgingly, not with a sense of an inferiority complex or somehow I'm missing out on all the fun and I'm apologizing but I'm holding this standard because that's what I have to do. But actually gladly do what's right. And God acts on behalf of those who gladly do what's right. He rescues those who wait for him. The answer to sin isn't legalism. The answer to sin is Jesus. And people who are in love with Jesus hate sin. That's what it means to boil for the Lord. When, when you refine gold, what happens? You put the heat under it, and everything that you didn't know was in there comes to the surface. 
you got a choice. You can stir it back down in or you can skim it off and be refined. That's the purpose of the heat. Those who gladly do what is right are burning for the Lord. Psalm 97 verse 10 says, let those who love the Lord hate evil. Wave at me if you love the Lord. If that's true, you hate evil. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones, and he delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Righteousness is protection for you. Right living, it's protection for you. Not pushing the boundaries is protection for you. Avoiding sin is protection for you. Staying away from the temptations that are trying to pull your soul into erosion, it's protection for you. Psalm 34, 15 says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. God gives us a new nature. Listen, there are things that we enjoy now that we never would have enjoyed before Jesus. And there are things that we used to enjoy that are no longer appealing. And when we embrace this change, Isaiah says it's unlike anything else in the universe. It said it moves the hand of God on our behalf. How many need God to move on your behalf? Gladly do what's right. That's a promise. I need God to move on my behalf. Well, embrace right living. Gladly. Righteousness and righteous living is an expression of faith. The righteous will live by faith, and the faithful will live by righteousness. That's so good, I'll say it again. The righteous will live by faith, and the faithful will live by righteousness. Back to the text. Verse 5, but when we continue to sin against them, against what? Against the ways of God. Again, not just the laws of God. That's foregone conclusion. The ways of God. When we conti- that, in context, when we continue to sin against what we learned of you, the more we grew in knowledge of you. The more we started to know you and love you and our hearts began to burn for you, there were things that we started to set aside. The Bible would be too long of a book. And listen, God would have to keep sending down uh, an angel or awaken a prophet. There'd be some open canon of scripture so that we could update the list of do's and don'ts. Because there was an internet when the Bible was written. And yet the Bible speaks to the internet age. There may be some new avenues of temptation, but God's work speaks to all of it. God's word speaks to every possible venue. The canon of scripture is closed, but the heart of God is open. And so when I learn his ways, when I rebelled against your ways, verse 5, when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. It's an unpopular view of God. When we want to say that God is always in a good mood, it's as though we take away his personhood. When we continued to sin against your ways, you were angry. How then can we be saved? Verse 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. 
we all shrivel up, shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. Yet, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. What a contrast. Every truth is held between the tension of two seemingly opposing points. I always say the truth is held in tension, and then one of the interns told me, they always thought I was saying intention like intentionality. So I was like, how do I say it different? Every truth is held between the tension of two seemingly opposing points. God acts on behalf of those who wait for him and gladly do what is right on one side. And our righteousness is as filthy rags on the other. I'm just going to tell you, it's spiritually lazy to simply say, my righteousness is a filthy rag, so it doesn't matter what I do. Right. You, like, to say that, you can quote verse 6 all you want, but you miss verse 4. You miss verse 5. You miss gladly doing what is right. What Scripture is teaching us is that we must rely on God's mercy and we must also live holy lives. It's not one or the other. It's not just rely on God's mercy and live however you want. That's the spirit of this age. I'll take it one step further. That's a doctrine of demons. I'll take it another step further. That's a different gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul said, teaches us to say no to ungodliness. If we won't be taught, we've rejected the gospel. And so the two points that have to be brought together in the tension of faith. Is that I must depend on God's mercy and I must also live a holy life. God rends the heavens. God tears open heaven for those who remember his ways and obey him. And God is angry against those who sin. Verse 5. I didn't say it. God said it. I agree with God. You should too. God's angry against those who sin. That's not popular to say, but that's the truth. God loves the sinner and hates the sin. Is God going to judge your sin before the great white throne or will he judge the sinner? You're going to stand before God and go, oh, that wasn't me. That was sin. <laughs> See, that different gospel puts a, puts a helmet over our thinking. But God's word is like a fire. It's like a hammer. He comes to get the truth into the depths of us. His, his word burns this morning. God's angry against those who sin. So then Isaiah, in the midst of his prayer, asks the question that's in this room right now. How then can we be saved? How then can we be saved? Because we know we've all sinned. 
Our righteousness is like filthy rags. That's the truth. We shrivel up like a leaf and get blown away by sin. That's the truth. So hear me clearly this morning. We are not saved by our righteousness. We are saved by a loving father who sent his son into the world for us. That's the good news. We're saved from sin and we're saved to right living. What good is it to be saved from sin and then go back to it? Paul asked that question. How can we who are dead to sin live in it still? It's a rhetorical question, meaning the answer is so obvious. The answer is you can't. I can't be dead to sin and keep living in sin. So I'm not saved by my righteousness. I'm saved by a loving father who sent his son into the world for me. But listen, I'm saved from sin and saved to righteousness, to right living. The righteousness of being cleansed and forgiven and the righteousness of living for him and gladly doing what is right. Amen. Gladly doing what is right. Not just I'm cleansed and I'm the righteousness of God positionally, but now actively I'm living out that righteousness out of glad, a glad heart of obedience to the Lord that I'm not staring in the rearview window wishing I was back where I used to be, but I've closed the door. I'm a brand new creation. He's given me a new nature. The Spirit of God lives inside of me and He's helping me to conquer where it was impossible for me to conquer before. That's the fire of God burning in a heart that boils with heat for love for Jesus. That's what Paul said to Timothy. Fan that in a flame. Get your spirit boiling so that you're not staring at the rear view. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 says this, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this, what? This faith, not from yourself. It's the gift of God. How does my salvation work? God is merciful and amazing. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Get verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So right there in Ephesians 2, 8, and 10, you can highlight it, circle it, study it for yourself. But the Coles notes is this. You're saved by grace through faith, and that all came from God. And you're not saved by your good works, but you are saved to do good works. We're saved by the mercy of our loving God who is our Father. Isaiah caught the heart of Jesus while he prayed. He called God Father. Yet you are our Father. You are the potter, we're the clay. Be kind to us. Don't remember our sins forever. Look on us with mercy. That's revival praying. That's a prayer that, that political leaders in this land need to pray. I get the sense they're not praying it. 
We need intercessors. Pray the prayer that needs to be prayed. Don't remember our sins. Look on us with mercy. For we are all your children. All of us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the Jews. For, for God so loved the disciples. For God so loved the first century believers. No, it says, For God so loved the... For God so loved the... God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That includes you and me. The answer to the prayer that we have just worked through from Isaiah 64, the answer to the prayer is the advent. It's Jesus coming. The Savior of the world. Jesus left his throne in glory, the eternal living word, came and dwelt among us and took on flesh. God overshadowed Mary. She conceived, and he, from that point forward, is forever human, fully God, fully man. God took on flesh and came and lived among us. A man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, acquainted with grief. Taking your sin and mine, taking the punishment that that sin deserves because of the holiness of God, the God who is angry at sin, poured out his wrath on Jesus who became the sins of the whole world. That's radical mercy. Any other version of the saving work of Jesus on the cross is a different gospel. God poured out his judgment on Jesus so that you and I could be spared. Just generally? No, through faith. And that not from yourself, the gift of God at work in you. To confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. That's the answer to Isaiah's prayer. Don't be angry forever. How can he look past our sin? He could see the one who paid for our sin in full. We look to the lamb. And we see the one who paid for us. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information on who we are, visit our website at lakebound.ca or download our app for your mobile device.